0: Okay, I want to go into Dr. Pizzolatto's case.
1: This patient is a 74-year-old bohemian man who I first met in October. His history dated back to 1994, at which time he had a radical prostatectomy, and I never got any of those records. However, he told me that he was on antiandrogen therapy since the surgery. He apparently had rising PSAs and presented to me with a few skeletal metastases He had just finished receiving a course of radiotherapy to the spine as he had had an impending cord compression. At that time, I had classified him in initial consultation as castrate hormone refractory with a rising PSA. I calculated his doubling time, which was nine months, and at that time, I started him on ketoconazole. His PSA was 75. Unfortunately, his PSA quickly climbed to 100, 108, 120. He was also complaining of left hip pain, which interestingly, he told me, and I knew he had significant disease there, and he would benefit from radiotherapy. However, he declined any further radiotherapy, and I wasn't really sure why. It's hard to imagine that he could have had that bad of an experience.
0: And so you wanted to radiate him?
1: I thought it was, if nothing else, palliative. He was walking with a cane. When I first met him, he was sort of using the cane a little bit and then as I got to know him I saw him much more dependent on the cane clearly I was concerned and to this day I will say that I continue to ask him why not get that hip radiated and what did the x-rays look like and were you concerned about fracture he didn't have what would be called an impending fracture but he had a lot of disease there in the hip that clearly could have benefited
0: what was his social situation
1: So social situation is actually, you know, pretty interesting. I guess a lot of what we do as medical oncologists focus on us seeing patients often. And uh, while initially I didn't really get to know him so well, what I've come to know over almost a year is that his wife really depends on him in terms of a lot of things. How old is his wife? His wife is roughly the same age. Is she well or ill? She's well it's simply that he does just about everything around the home and he does maintain all the finances and the other thing that I got to know is that his granddaughter was a medical student at NYU and she was going to graduate in 2007 so when I got to know him in 2006 he simply told me you know that his desire was to go to her graduation and at that time clearly with what I was seeing I certainly wasn't going to make any promises as to what we could and couldn't do.
0: How often do you see that where people who have, you know, incurable situations focus on some type of event, a wedding, graduation, birthday, et cetera?
1: I think it's tremendously common. You know, we see this all the time, and it's really a nice thing when we can deliver. And it's certainly a sad thing when we don't deliver. We sort of take it on ourselves as to try and get patients to that end point. Uh, that the patient really focuses on.
0: So he was very close with his granddaughter, was anxious he to was. to was He was,
1: and actually she did come on a couple of visits, and she's obviously a very bright young lady.
0: So William, what would you be thinking about in this situation? Well, I think that clearly he's having
2: progressive metastatic symptoms. You said that he had disseminated bone metastases more in the hip.
1: He did. It was quite disseminated. It was just that the hip yes, was more was painful was than more everywhere painful. else.
0: He had pain in other locations, though?
1: He did, and he wasn't the type to really complain.
2: So a couple of things that I go through in this type of setting, especially if they're new to me, is, for example, his history of hormonal therapy is, I wasn't sure from your description whether he was still on hormonal therapy or whether he had had bilateral orchiectomy or not. Generally speaking, one of the questions that comes up is whether a patient who's clearly resistant should continue on an LHRH agonist. Is that indicated? It's a subject that hasn't been studied well, but in two studies that were published almost over 10 years ago, there was a suggestion in metastatic disease that continuing LHRH LHRH agonist could be associated with an improved survival in one study and was neutral in the other. So our general practice is to check. I have seen patients like this where their LHRH had been stopped a year earlier and their testosterone were now quite high. You put them back on hormonal therapy and you sometimes get kind of a salvage response. The concept being that maybe even if they do have resistant disease, they may have some hormone-sensitive cells as well. So
1: Yeah, he indeed had remained on an LHRH agonist.
2: And then I think the choice of ketoconazole, when you first saw him, was a very reasonable one. We've used a dose of 200 milligrams three times a day, kind of as a moderate dose. High-dose ketoconazole is twice that, as you know, usually with steroids. If you do 200 three times a day on an empty stomach, it tends to be better tolerated, less fatiguing, less nausea-inducing. But he clearly hasn't responded.
1: Yeah, we started him on 200. I usually start our patients somewhat slowly. And I escalated him. Eventually, he got on 200 in the morning and 400 in the afternoon and at night. Again, he wasn't one to complain and was simply quite thankful for anything that we could do for him. And again, I just kept watching the PSA go in the wrong direction.
2: So I think his choices right now, generally speaking, are to go to chemotherapy versus to continue to try second-line hormonal therapies. There's no evidence that ketoconazole or any further second-line hormonal therapies are associated with a survival benefit. They're primarily palliative, but other types of second-line hormonal therapies, for example, other antiandrogens, high-dose bicalutamide, nilutamide, steroids alone, prednisone, hydrocortisone, or estrogens, we did a study that's just coming out in Journal of Virology looking at high-dose premarin 1.25 TID, are all associated with response rates in this hormone-resistant setting. If you use PSA as a measure, it's about a 20 to 50% response rate, depending on the study, and usually the durations of response are about four to six months. Because he's symptomatic, though, and because his PSA is now seems to be rising more quickly, I think chemotherapy is definitely indicated in this type of patient. The social history that you brought up and the fact that he was reluctant to consider radiation, which we think is a very well-tolerated simple therapy, would make me worry that if I brought up chemotherapy with this patient that he might not agree to it. I think, though, it's clearly not only associated with a palliative benefit, but also a survival benefit, and in this type of patient, I think it's a very reasonable choice to consider docetaxel chemotherapy.
0: And if he were to ask you, okay, what should I expect in terms of potential benefits and risks, again, considering he's also 74? Right. In a patient like this, I always
2: highlight the fact that people who get chemotherapy live longer. Some people ask me how much longer, and you can give them medians. As you know, the median's about two to three months. But medians, we also know as oncologists, may underestimate the benefit for some patients and overestimate the benefit for others. And so I never talk in medians. I try to tell people that it might not work at all, but that it could work for years. And so I try to highlight to people that it could keep them alive much longer. I also tell them that it makes many patients' pain get better and makes them more functional. Ironically, it makes them feel better. So if he were to say to you, what's the chance
0: that I'm going to feel better by taking
2: chemotherapy? I tell them about half the people who get it feel better, especially if they're symptomatic, and that they'll feel better longer. But then, of course, people are always worried about the side effects. And as oncologists, we're certainly used to this. Chemotherapy's had a bad, maybe deservedly bad reputation for many years. But especially older men like this, unlike young women with breast cancer, for example, who are much more savvy, they have this perception that it's kind of, you know, what their aunt received, platinum-based chemotherapy their aunt received in the 1970s. And they don't want any part of it. So I have found, and I'm sure the oncologists in the room know this as well, a lot of this is just education and trust, you know, telling them, listen, I'm not going to give you more than one if you really don't like it, but most people tolerate it pretty well. And, of course, the dose limiting toxicity of docetaxel is fatigue. The serious complications are rare. So this is a classic patient who I think would tolerate it pretty well. And the key question is whether you can get over the hurdle of allowing you to give it to him. So what happened?
1: Well, interestingly enough, I shared your concerns, but at the same time, he really, his performance status was an eCog 2. He really actually fit criteria to enter lgb 9401, which we were offering. Excellent. And I spoke with him, and we discussed it. And again, his desire was to live. CALGB 9401 randomized patients to a taxotere-based regimen plus or minus bevacizumab.
2: So this is an excellent study. We have it open as well. It's building on what we know may be an important mechanism of disease progression, hormone refractory disease, namely, progressive angiogenesis and expression of VEGF. It builds also on what we know in colorectal breast and lung cancer. Can
0: you backtrack a little bit and talk about what bevacizumab is, Avastin, how it works, and what we know about it in prostate cancer?
2: It's a monoclonal antibody directed against VEGF, which is the key protein that stimulates angiogenesis. There are other angiogenesis inhibitors, for example, drugs like sunitinib and serafinib, which are small molecule inhibitors of the VEGF receptor. So this is the only angiogenesis inhibitor that works by binding to the ligand, the protein that stimulates angiogenesis. So in that sense, it has a unique mechanism of action. Its safety profile has been fairly well established, although now, as more and more people are getting it, some unusual types of side effects like posterior leukoencephalopathy and bowel perforations have been described. So I think whenever it's brought into a new environment, it has to be studied in a randomized trial, which is what CLGB90401 is looking at. But I think that in a phase two study that CLGB did, it was clearly safe in combination in 70 patients who received the combination of docetaxel with bevacizumab.
0: You mentioned some of the unusual slash rare complications, but one more common one is hypertension. What's actually seen in terms of the level of hypertension and how easy or difficult it is to control? So hypertension seems to be a class effect of all angiogenesis inhibitors. It's
2: true with sunitinib and serafinib, for example, and it's certainly true in bevacizumab. In general, most patients who receive, and there is a high rate of hypertension, in, for example, in prostate and kidney cancers, which are the two cancers I treat with these types of drugs, but most of it's moderate and can be controlled with standard antihypertensives. It's rare that a patient would actually have to stop or have a dose reduction because of uncontrolled hypertension, but it's not uncommon for patients to have to either go up on their own antihypertensives or to have several additional drugs added.
0: Now, in colon cancer, lung cancer, and breast cancer, bevacizumab is used with chemotherapy as opposed to by itself. What do we know about bevacizumab and prostate cancer?
2: we think that that's the same. So it was tested as a single agent and had no significant activity as a single agent. The only disease where angiogenesis inhibitors have seemed to have significant single agent activity is actually renal cell carcinoma. Bevacizumab, sunitinib, serafinib, all of these drugs, I think, and that goes really to the mechanism of kidney cancer, which is really completely VEGF-driven disease. So that's a targeted therapy for kidney cancer. In prostate cancer, As with the other major solid tumors, I think the thinking has turned around from maybe the Judah Folkman model that all you have to do is just stop angiogenesis and the tumors will melt away. I think what we're seeing is probably a ordering of the disordered angiogenesis that occurs in cancer and that perhaps there's a better delivery of chemotherapy to the tumors, although I think that's still speculation about why it seems to work better with chemo.
0: Overall, how does bevacizumab affect quality of life? If the patient's are already going to get chemo. Do they feel a lot worse if you add in the bevacizumab or not much? Well,
2: this is a placebo-controlled trial, and we have put about 20 patients on, and I have really been unable to tell who's on the drug or not. My nurses try to guess based on the blood pressure. <laughs> but the truth is that's a good placebo-controlled trial when you cannot tell which arm the patients are on. So I applaud you for putting the patient on. I think it's a very good trial, and I think it's accruing very well, and hopefully we'll get an answer soon.
0: There's a lot of trials now looking at chemo, plus or minus bevacizumab, particularly in earlier stage disease, you know, colon cancer. We've got an adjuvant trial already completed. We don't have results, et cetera. And again, I think the favorable side effects profile has been important. But I'm curious about your discussions with this man. You know, he's an older man, 74 years old. I'll bet you most of the people in this room were kind of surprised when they heard that you even brought up a randomized clinical trial to him. And yet, it has been attractive for patients because it offers them something they certainly wouldn't get it off study. How did your discussions with him go with this?
1: You know, this is one of those patients that really said, doctor, whatever you think is best. He had demonstrated an extraordinary compliance, especially when using ketoconazole. You kind of need a patient to be compliant because it can have some side effects. And I noted that he was pretty compliant and I noted that he kept coming to his appointments. And for me, that was a pretty big deal. My only concern about even putting him on the trial was that his performance status and perhaps how long he would live. He really gave me a carte blanche in terms of doing whatever I wanted. And he said he would try to tolerate whatever it was that I gave him. And So in October, he began taxotere-based therapy. Interestingly, he actually, in part, perhaps because his performance status wasn't so good, he never really demonstrated increased fatigue because he was fatigued from the onset. Nonetheless, from a PSA of 120, he remains on the trial. His PSA is now 17, and interim scans continue to show improvement.
0: So you actually get a placebo infusion in this study? Right and what's his blood pressure doing so
1: i went back and tried to figure out myself you know he never told me he had any increase in nosebleeds or rectal bleeding and from hemorrhoids looking back at his blood pressures they never really seem to change much i mean all these pressures fluctuate especially on days when they have to come for chemotherapy so i can't tell
2: they get steroids as well right. as premedication, so that may alter it as well
1: Yeah, I certainly can't tell, but, you know, I'm certainly extremely pleased he was able to go to Washington Square Park to NYU's graduation and see his granddaughter graduate medical school. When was that? Uh, That was uh, in May. Wow, how was that? He really enjoyed it. He came back extraordinarily happy.
0: That's a great victory, huh? Yeah, hopefully we're going to keep going. You know, maybe I can go to the residency and you know, <laughs> 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 become an oncology uh, fellow. How did he do? Uh, you mentioned the fact that his fatigue level really didn't change. Uh, what about his pain and any other side effects? Any problems? You know, with his? I don't think he's gotten a lot of bang
1: out of pain. I think he still has a decent amount of pain, and for that reason, I've always said if you want to stop and you want to get this hip radiated, it's certainly a reasonable thing. And he's pretty content. So long as he comes in, he gets his therapy, and every so often I tell him, listen, you're doing well, he's happy. His biggest concern, and again, this has come out only over months of developing a relationship with him, is apparently is really who's going to take care of his wife and how she's going to cope, and he really depends on us to keep him going.
3: Judd, any thoughts about this case? I mean, it's a very interesting case. I mean, again, at 74 in this day and age, I wouldn't have had any qualms about putting him on a clinical trial at 74. And I agree, it's an exciting trial. We're doing it at our institution as well, although we haven't done as well in accrual as you guys have done. But I think it's really interesting to see how long he'll respond. I guess as far as the dose taxol, at least from a urology standpoint, we're kind of being told that the more cycles that medical oncologists can get into these patients, the better it's going to be. So... They're talking about trying to get 10 cycles, quote-unquote, under a patient's belt, and that might be associated with a better response rate. So in this clinical trial, I would ask, I mean, is there a limit to the number of cycles that the patient will receive, or they just go on indefinitely as long as he's responding?
1: Yeah, as long as they're responding, they can remain on trial.
3: William, what about this
0: idea of, quote, getting 10 cycles under your belt? The 10 cycles comes from the study
2: design of TAX-327, which chose it as an arbitrary endpoint. When clinical trials are designed, there are many different rationales for why they design it. When you're putting together a 1,000-patient international study, Sometimes there's a clear advantage to putting a limit on the amount of chemotherapy so that you can determine your primary endpoint, which in that case was survival. I certainly don't in my practice limit patients. We don't get to ten cycles and say, oh, you're all done. And I don't say to a patient who's not made it that far, you gotta get to ten, it's gonna make Mm. a difference. And that's because it's a very dynamic situation. I do think, Judd, that you bring up an important point, which is that sometimes you don't want to make the decision too soon about whether patients are responding to chemotherapy and because as we all know in this room, PSA is both our greatest joy and happiness and also our biggest disappointment. So as in the situation with early disease, sometimes PSA gives a very quick and early indicator of whether the patient's benefiting. And with docetaxel, you often see within one or two cycles the PSA go down. But there have been descriptions of patients who take three or four or five cycles to actually get a significant decrease in their PSA. And if the patient otherwise is clinically about the same, you wouldn't necessarily want to abandon a treatment If it, for example, you know, might not kick in with regard to response until a slightly later point. I just wanted to make another comment about the trade-off in fatigue. We see this all the time. It's a very classic thing where his fatigue hasn't changed partly because the fatigue that may have been coming from cancer has actually improved while the fatigue that comes from the chemo may have slightly increased and it becomes a trade-off. If his performance status was 3 or 4, to me, if I thought that performance status came from cancer alone, it would not inhibit me from giving him chemo. I might give him a lower dose. I might start weekly. And we've all seen, I'm sure the oncologists in the room have seen, if you think their performance status is extremely poor, they can't even get up out of a chair because of cancer progression. Sometimes you will see their performance statuses improve, and maybe after a period of time, they start to get a little tired from the chemo. So that, I think, is what you're seeing with that trade off. And the hip pain should have gotten better if this chemotherapy is really helping. So it makes me suspicious about whether. This may be some mechanical problem that was related to maybe a microfracture, pathologic fracture. It may still be benefited by radiation. You know, it may be worth looking at that again. Alkaline phosphatase, I have found to be very helpful kind of as a, I consider it like kind of a poor man's PSA. It's, uh, you can get it in our lab. We can get it right away. So we can actually see in a patient whose AlkaFos is very elevated, you can watch that go down along with the PSA if they're responding.
3: You had mentioned that his PSA is down to 17. So in this particular patient, obviously if the PSA continues to decline, you're going to continue the trial, but how many cycles does it allow you to go even if the PSA is rising? Say 17 is the nadir and he starts to go back up again, where do you have to draw the line on the trial? If you progress, you have to come off of the trial. Any PSA?
1: No, it, there's rules. I think you have to have radiologic progression of disease or mm-hmm. a significant rise in PSA. Yeah, it's
2: probably a 25 to 50 percent rise. Confirmed on a second check Okay